Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. It's been a wild few weeks for the Welsh Conservative Party, with their then leader and chief whip being embroiled at the centre of an alleged lockdown rule breach. Those two received the full backing of the Welsh Conservative group only for another allegation to be levelled at them. The following day, Paul Davis resigned as leader. In what felt like no time at all, their former leader was their new leader, with Andrew R.T. Davis announced as the new Tory in chief in Cardiff Bay. While anti-devolution and anti-Senev sentiment seem to be coming into the fore in Wales, Boris Johnson is continuing his largely unsuccessful campaign in Scotland to persuade Scots that their future lies under the Westminster government rather than an independent Scottish one. Both the Unionists and the Union are experiencing difficult times. Joining me, Rich and Kerry this evening is Theo Davis-Lewis of Derogan. Uh, he's written extensively on Wales, Welsh politics and the future of the Union, and it's great to have him here with us this evening. Hello, Theo. Good evening, that's with that. Evening, Kerry. Good evening, Matthew. Evening, Richard. Good evening, all. So let's start with uh, obviously the big story, which is the Tories. It was a difficult week for them with losing their Senate leader, reappointing a, their old one, and they've been embroiled in a few internal debates and disagreements about the future direction of the party in Wales. In an election year, this doesn't look like a huge recipe for success, does it? No, of course not. I mean, it's a terrible week, and I think it's crisis after crisis, really, for the party at the minute. And I think they know that. Um, there was lots of stuff flurrying in on social media after the booze scandal in the CNF Tea Room about, you know, all these grassroots officials saying that Paul Davis, Darren Miller, they all had to go, and eventually that they did. Uh, and I think now, obviously, with Andrew R.T. coming back, uh, you've had this sort of continued underlying current of where the party is going uh, ahead of the Senate election and afterwards. And the issue, of course, as you mentioned in the introduction, is that, you know, that current of abolishing the Welsh, uh, the Welsh Parliament in their ranks. And I think, obviously, you've seen, and as we'll discuss, um, lots of new candidates emerging that actually now support getting rid of that Parliament. And then Liberal Conservatives being deselected or not selected for different seats. So, there's lots of question marks around the party. I mean, there's actually electoral difficulties ahead of them. That's, there's no question about that. But I think there's obviously a more fundamental question as well about where the party goes over the next few weeks. And I think the biggest problem for them is that they don't know themselves. You know, we had Glyn Davis last week on Politics Wales saying that the Welsh Conservative Party is a pro-devolution party. But then, of course, we've had different events, uh, even in the last 24 hours, regarding members such as Susie Davis and whether they're standing for the Senate. Uh, so it's kind of, you know, the rhetoric and the evidence doesn't line up. So it, it is going to be very, very difficult for them. And they've got no more than 100 days, really, until the election. So they better sort themselves out ahead of them if they're, if they're looking to get more seats than last time. As a Davis, I was slightly disappointed with uh, the Davis Ferrara in the Conservative Party. Yeah, I, I don't know if it is bad times ahead. Preparing for tonight, I looked at some of the figures for the Tories going back. You know, they've got a pretty consistent vote in Wales. And so it makes you wonder where their vote would go if people are appalled and put off by where what, what's happening with Boosgate. Will it go over to the other right-wing parties? Or will it just the changes have been put in? They put R.T. Davis in. But he is, he is popular, I think, amongst the Conservative Party in Wales. And he, he might put them back on a footing. But, you know, it might not gain them votes in May. But will it really push people into a different party? I'm not so sure. I think, I think the bigger issues with the Conservatives are bigger 
policy issues which we talk about on the pod and look to coming up to election you know the conservative government in london how they're doing on the pandemic the union those kind of issues i think will dwarf boozegate in due course but um it's obviously not ideal yeah i think you carrie's point about the conservative vote being pretty consistent as a percentage of turnout i think is is the kind of key one because the conservatives must be thinking not how can we necessarily extend our vote because they net you know they haven't won an election in wales for a century so they're not it's not like they're going to win but what they can do is at least get their voters who vote in westminster elections out for a senate election and that might be why we're seeing the kind of um unsubtlety in their the way that they're positioning the party ahead of the senate elections i mean they're being uh, they're painting with the the clearest colors exactly what kind of party they think their members want um and i think it's not un- unfair to say that the senate group has not been representative in any way of the membership for 20 years arguably you can say that's true of the conservative group in westminster but i think we're seeing in westminster the mps are becoming more like the membership and i think it certainly would appear, if you look at the candidate list, that while the Senev members that may be returned to the Senev will not be of the same age profile as their membership, they may have the same kind of strength of views over the future of devolution and some of the more uh, salient issues of the last few years since and including Brexit. Matt, so I referred to RT Davis in, in my thoughts on the whole scenario. What 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 is your take on him being made leader again? Is, is that gonna is that gonna flow as I suggested, or do you think there's more to it? I think it was the most obvious thing that could ever have happened to the Welsh Conservatives. I think there was talk already of a of a coup uh, being taken place because of so many sort of anti-devolution candidates becoming candidates for the Welsh Conservatives in the Senate election, and I think it it felt inevitable. Even if this hadn't have happened, it felt like. At some point after the election, if they hadn't done as well as they may have wanted to do, there would have been some attempt to dethrone Paul Davis. It just so happened that a scandal that happened the month before that no one was really talking about until it came out was the you know the straw that broke the camel's back. Actually, what the straw that broke the camel's back was was the second allegation after they'd given him their full backing. So I, I don't think anyone's surprised by uh, by Artie Davis's retaking of the throne. So I think it was inevitable, and no one's surprised. Theo, can I ask, you know, how much of what we saw with Paul Davis's ousting was choreographed um, and how much of it was coincidental? I think uh, that's difficult to say, isn't it? But I I do genuinely think that, um, you know, the Conservative group in the Senate, if you read the reports that came out, I mean, apparently they actually hadn't seen the Commission, the Senate Commission's findings uh, about the investigation before they made their decision. But obviously I couldn't comment on the validity of those reports. But I think there was probably a realisation when you're in a kind of crisis like that, that they had to try and stick with their leader if they can, because it's, it's panic stations and it says a lot about the Conservative group that they just basically sided with their leader uh, and they could have gotten rid of him then. That would have been the easy decision just to oust him right there and then with what was happening. You know, I, I wrote a piece you know, about 12 hours before Paul Davis resigned, no way linked to his resignation, of course. But for me, it was more the issue of the fact that the story ran, ran away from them and they completely lost the narrative. Because I'm sure, you know, if you look at the statement that Paul Davis and Darren Miller made after 
they resigned. You know, you kind of actually, if you're a decent person, probably felt uh, slightly bad for them because obviously I'm sure they would doing what the Sun and Guido Fawkes were all um, illustrating, making them out to have this huge booze up, although we don't know all the facts around it. But at the end of the day, it was it was a narrative which they lost control of. The story was completely gone. People had created that media uh, storm. The grassroots had made their decision and, you know, he had to go. And I think, obviously, you know, having Andrew Arty coming back, and I agree with what uh, Matt and, and Carrie said, that he was the obvious choice, I suppose, for him now. Uh, like I said, to begin with, it's a decision he's got to make about where the party goes, because you're right to say that there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of small C conservatives out there that will always turn out for the party. We saw that in 2019. The interesting thing, if we're going to take Lynn Davis's word for it, and that Welsh conservatives are going to, you know, be a part of Welsh democracy, they're going to be participants. They've got to do what all parties have got to do to get power, which is to compromise and make deals, because that's how you get in to the Welsh government. I mean, we saw that, you know, we've seen that with the Welsh Labour Party over the last 20 years. That's the reason they're still here. And it's pretty likely, obviously, that they're not going to be able to compromise. And it obviously requires compromise as well from the other parties like Plaid Cymru. And Adam Price clearly doesn't want to do that because he still thinks genuinely he's going to be first minister. The issue, of course, you know, with Paul Davis and Darren Miller, it's yesterday's story now. There was a, there was debates, obviously, over whether uh, they were going to remain candidates. Uh, so I think, you know, all the findings will come out that, you know, all these investigations will happen. Uh, it might not be an issue, like Kerry says, ahead of the election. But what will be, I think, this continued lingering uh, matter for them is, do we see a shift miraculously in the next week, which I personally would love to see for the party to be more progressive and pragmatic. But I doubt that's going to happen. You mentioned the Boosgate. Will it still linger? I, I don't think it will, simply because it's, it's cross it's cross party. You know, there's a, there's a stranger in the mix, so it can't really be attacked by the Labour Party as much as it perhaps could have in another situation. I don't think it will linger, but where do, where do you think it leaves those politicians who were involved? Do you think it is going to be pressure on them going forward, or do you, do you think it will just be wiped up uh, as a spilled drink, perhaps? It's it's really difficult to say, because I do, I do think it depends, you know, on the processes with Cardiff Council and the Standards uh, Commissioner as well. Because, I mean, basically, what they say and, you know, what the evidence is, that's what will that's what will take the story forward. I mean, for me, I think, you know, right now, after the week, I mean, things are happening so quickly. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, Boris's visit to Scotland. That's overtaken the agenda this week. And there'll be something next week. And there'll be something even an hour after this podcast goes out that changes the narrative again. It's really difficult to see, but I think it does, no matter what happens with the story, I think it is something, you know, important in the midst of a pandemic that it did shine a spotlight again for the wrong reasons on the Welsh Parliament. I think what, I don't know what the Sun said, it was something like Welsh Parley Party was their imaginative headline and it didn't reflect best on Welsh democracy and Welsh politicians. And It's easy to disregard that sort of thing. But I think it's actually quite important because up until very recently, I think Wales were still treated like a bit of a joke on the UK stage and stuff like this doesn't help. You know, like I said at the time, I think it undermined trust generally. Like you said, obviously the Labour Party were kind of involved there with Alan Davis as well. You know, it does undermine trust in politicians. And I think a lot of people actually, if you read the media coverage, the social media reaction, and it'd be interesting to see the next polling on it, see if it does have an, an effect. I think a lot of people were actually really angry with it. You know, no matter 
whatever the facts really and what are the concrete facts the impression is just terrible hence they all said sorry straight away so i think you know it might not be that central election issue but it perhaps doesn't help all those people that want to abolish the welsh parliament because i saw them very active on social media afterwards saying well this is what they think of you in this in this in this tea room in the senate they're not making decisions they're going for drinks there it wasn't a loss really just for the tory party or the, or the welsh labour party it was actually a a huge impact really on perceptions on, on politicians and the Welsh Parliament, which is a huge shame, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I I had friends and relatives who don't really pay any attention to uh, Welsh politics and they were talking about uh, Drinksgate with some scorn and it, it was damaging to democracy. That's the kind of old guard and where they're, where they're positioning themselves. But there's a new batch of uh, Conservative candidates coming into political arena in Wales and many of them are, have suggested a hostility to devolution. Have you got any thoughts on where, how that could play out in this election? It depends how many of them get elected. I think that like you guys were talking about, I think this drinks gate thing has had a bit more effect on confidence in the institution itself rather than the party. Although people did mention drinks gate to me, I don't think it's quite got the same cultural cut through as Barnard Castle had and I think actually what it's done is it's damaged the Senate more than it's damaged the Tories. It would have, it would have been good if we'd had a slightly more imaginative kind of faux pas in Wales you know tea room gate isn't really Barnard Castle in any stretch of the imagination is it? No not really like you said a huge amount of anti-Devo candidates coming through the Welsh Conservative ranks when we did our podcast with a bunch of them they seem to not be as openly anti-Devo the ones we spoke to anyway, but I know for certain there are quite a few who are. I've seen some comment today saying that this is a force that I don't think the Welsh Conservatives really understand. They're trying to ride this populist wave of anti-devolution or devo-sceptic sentiment to try and pick up votes that would have otherwise gone to right-wing parties on the list. And I think they're going to end up with radical right forces that they can't control. And even Andrew Darty Davis, who has a pound shop populist at the best of times, is going to try and take that on and try and create this balance between the Conservative Party of Nick Bourne and the one of Boris Johnson. And I think he's going to let through this Boris light version of Conservatism into the Welsh Tory party and it will completely overtake them. And I think if enough of those candidates get elected, that's the future of the Welsh Conservative Party for the next 20, 30 years. I'll throw this over to you, Theo. Do you think that the benefits for the Welsh Conservatives of pursuing this strategy outweigh the negatives? Well, again, it comes back to actually what they want to achieve, isn't it? I mean, I think they will, so they will never get into the Welsh government and become a party of government with sort of an abolitionist sentiment at their heart. And that's the heart of it. They'll never do it. It just electorally doesn't work. Um, I think really what is happening to the party now is that they're embracing this anti-devolution sentiment, which has always been in its membership for 20 years. We have to remember as well, for as much as I write positive things about David Melding, who's you now listened to his contributions to the podcast uh, last year, and the likes of uh, Nick, now Lord Bourne, you know, these guys were also sceptical of devolution and opposed to devolution for a period before uh, the vote. And obviously, they don't have to sort of go through the well-rehearsed history, but then there was kind of a realism that we're going to have to work with this. And, you know, the likes of Melding realised that 
or suggest that the only reason that the union is actually together is actually because of devolution, because it, it that was a pressure on the system of government which required a solution. Obviously, now it's been translated into a kind of need for federalism in some ranks of the Labour Party. But, you know, these abolitionist candidates, I don't think many of them will actually be elected through the Welsh Conservative ranks personally, but obviously they may get some votes coming in through the lists uh, from the Abolish the Welsh Assembly Party as well, which is a, an electoral strategy they may want to do. But of course, I don't see really where it gets them. What I think it does uh, is actually pander to the divisions that we're seeing now in Wales. And I think this is the big undercurrent now is that we're having in this populist mania, we're going to two radically alternative uh, solutions to the problems. We've got people going to independence. We don't know anything about Welsh independence, really, apart from the Plaid Cymru Commission. You've got ev- loads of people going there. And then you've got other people going towards the abolitionist sentiment of getting rid of Welsh representation in in our own country altogether. And I think for the Welsh Conservative Party, it's very dangerous for us in kind of Welsh civic society for them to adopt the role possibly of being the main vehicle of the latter movement towards the abolitionist ranks. Because, you know, it's easy to disregard that, you know, the Welsh Conservative Party is now turning into, you know, an Anglo-centric uh, party. But the reality is, is that they are a fundamental aspect of Welsh politics, and they have been for the last 20 years, and they are a big part of the reason that devolution has succeeded in Wales. They have the potential, if they adopt, and 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 imp- I think the right word now is whether they will really embrace it, because they've, they've adopted a few candidates lower down on the regional list seats. It's whether they really harness it and decide, right, we're gonna we're gonna go to this populist wing and we're gonna try and get a few hundred, a few more hundred thousand votes. If they do that, I really think that Wales will become a, a really massive melting pot of division. Where you know if Scotland goes and you know all these hypotheticals happen, we're gonna be sitting there with you know people pointing in different directions, not knowing where to go. And you know I sort of talked about this this week in the Western Mail, the possibility of that will be tied to England. And I'm an Anglophile, but I think that is what would satisfy a lot of people in the Welsh Conservative Party today. And I think that is incredibly dangerous for the future of our country. Before we go on to the union as a topic in of itself, just wanted to talk a little bit about this this sort of move to the right and these new candidates a bit more with you, Theo. You know, you could you could call the new Conservative Party the RT Party, following a Republican model. Where do you think the future of the party lies in terms of like potential future leaders and things like that? Do you, do you think that this young core of candidates that seem to be coming through now represents a sustainable future for the party? Or do you think this is sort of a flash in the pan populism? Well, I think, you know, we'll go on to the union, but I think it will depend on what happens elsewhere, because they are, I think they're actually turning into an ideological vehicle more than a political party. Uh, so I think it'll depend on, you know, what happens elsewhere, whether, you know, the forces in Scotland are tamed and, you know, all these sorts of things. You're right to say as well that the party membership and the young people coming into the party as well are increasingly devo-sceptic. Of course, it's not to sort of, you know, someone like me or anyone else looking at Welsh politics is not to disregard that and overlook it. For me, the disappointment comes into the fact that it shows a sort of lack of enthusiasm to participate in the whole democratic system. I think, for me, if you look at the last 10 years of, you know, if you look at the future of Welsh Conservative, or the Welsh Conservative Party over the last 10 years, it's been very difficult at each juncture really to see a leader emerging like a Ruth Davidson leader. This is a problem that's really been in the party since Nick Bourne was surprisingly chucked out of the Senate uh, in the elections after 2011. 
But I think since then, they've really struggled to find a leader that can give them direction as well. And I think we've talked about the fact that the group don't represent their members, you know, especially on the devolution question, but that might change. I think since, you know, 2010, 2011, and, you know, that kind of gang of born and melding leaving, it's been really difficult to see a leader sort of taking them on a concrete path. Because even now, you know, we had Paul Davis as leader, but he, he wasn't really, you know, he wasn't really embracing the abolition abolitionist sentiment at all. He was kind of really walking a tightrope. And it sort of meant that you bred this kind of radicalism within the party, which then went one way rather than the other. Um, so I think now, you know, if you look, the future of the Welsh Conservative Party is incredibly difficult to predict. I don't, I don't really see, if I'm honest, you know, who, who would be the successor to Andrew R.T. Davis, for example. If you ask me now, I honestly couldn't tell you who would succeed him. I don't think he'll be in the role personally for very long. And that's, I think, a big question as well is, you know, who is going to be the next party leader? Of course, they've technically got three in wheels already. That's another issue that they don't want to address. And, you know, I, I think back to last summer and I had a debate with Andrew R.T., on the Sunday Supplement programme with on Radio Wheels. And actually, it was a really good, good-natured debate um, when I kind of called at the time for, you know, essentially a greater uh, shift to what we had seen previously. And, you know, I know that my idea of the Conservative Party Wheels as a pragmatically progressive pro-devolution party is not popular in the grassroots, although I still maintain it was it'd get them elected if they tried. I remember having that debate and Andrew actually, you know, pointing out that it's, you know, it is really strange to have the situation where you know if i think david melding said it in one of his blog blog posts that uh or the last of the unionists post he does on twitter that if you had a uh, a martian come down from mars to say to the welsh conservative conference take me to your leader they'd be all be pointing in different directions uh, and i think that genuinely is a huge issue and that will influence where the party goes you need and you and you do need someone like a ruth davidson somebody young energetic radical who is holding the likes of nationalists, in Ruth's case, um, the SNP to account. I think if you had that sort of leader, that small C conservatism in Wales would actually be an unstoppable force against a, a Welsh Labour Party, which has had an easy run. And I think if they wanted to be a part of that democracy and really go for it, they could. But unfortunately, I don't think over the next couple of years, we're going to see that Welsh Conservative Party of old returning anytime soon. I, I totally agree with you on so, on so much of that, Theo, particularly the bit about where's the next leader of the Conservatives coming from. It's uh, There are people there, but no one jumps out to replace Paul Davis, and you can't think really of anyone jumping out to replace RT in the foreseeable future. You you obviously wrote today in the Western Mail about a lot of this and the union and where we're going, and that followed on from what the Times published last Sunday about the fragile nature of the union. Do you want to talk a little bit further about what you wrote today and uh, about how the unstable nature of the union and where do you think the Welsh Conservatives are on this? Yeah, of course. I think for me, after reading the polling in the Sunday Times, you know, it wasn't surprising. Obviously, many academics pointed out this is just basically the next poll, which has been consistent throughout, showing that support for Scottish independence is massive, in, relatively anyway, to you know a few years ago. And then obviously you've got support for a, a border poll, uh, in Northern Ireland, United Ireland. Um, and for me, it sort of raises questions, obviously, about the future of Wales and where we sit in all of this, because, you know, I am not somebody who is, 
you know, naturally a, a Welsh political nationalist. I think everyone in Wales actually is a soft nationalist, is my theory, that everyone basically loves, you know, Welsh rugby and, the, and everyone, even if you don't speak the language, loves the language. We all love Wales. And I think that was a lot of my upbringing, actually, as well. But I think now, obviously, we've had this situation where the possibility of Scotland leaving, and I think they will. I really do. It's not unstoppable. It's not unstoppable yet, but I think we're getting to a close point. And the solutions that we have to stop them going are coming from the Labour Party at the minute, unless you think Boris Johnson sticking Union Jacks on packets of eggs is going to do the trick. The solution that Gordon Brown, even the likes of Mick Antony, and sort of subtly supported by the First Minister, Mark Drakeford, of this radical federalism, uh, sticking radical on the front of it obviously makes it even more radical. I think it's something that the Scots, you know, will never go for, because I think something like federalism will tie you to something called the UK. And I think this idea of the union being centralised in Westminster is completely repugnant to the Scottish nationalists and they will never go for it. So my piece you know, this week in the Western Mail sort of looked at if Scotland goes, you know, what happens to this federal model, this alternative to independence that's being put forward at the minute? And for me, I think it is something that it's something that's not going to work because if the Scots don't take it, nobody takes it. I think the Welsh right now would be very happy to take a federalist model, actually, because we we need to remember that we are a country that is pro, pro-union. We are very happy to embrace Welshness, whatever that means, and Britishness, whatever that means, together. We're very happy to be a part of a political union, but also a cultural and social union that is sort of encapsulated under under this guise of Britain. For us, the question is now, and it ties back to this sort of Welsh Conservative Party and where they stand. They're obviously pro-unionist. They'll do anything to keep Wales attached to England, in my view. The question is now is whether Wales, in the end, will be sitting, you know, on our hands, really, just waiting for something to happen. Scotland goes, Northern Ireland goes, and Wales is just sitting there with England thinking, oh, right, um, well, here we go again. This is 1282 all over again. It's going to be a really, really difficult situation, you know, for us as a country, because I just don't think a United Kingdom of Wales and England, as I put it in the piece, is practical or feasible. Um, but I think, you know, the onus is not just on those unionists in the Welsh Conservative Party to sort of justify how the union works at its present time or to suggest how it could be reformed. The onus is also on the likes of Plaid Cymru and, you know, yes, Cymru, if you think that they should have a role in this, to paint a picture of an independent Wales. And by that, I mean in a confederate system across Britain, because that's what they most people actually support, I think. It's a really complex web, but I think the central element of what I was asking was, what is Wales, I think, as a, as a country and actually our, our progressive politicians, what are we going to put forward which is realistic? Because now I think the genuine approach is pray that Scotland doesn't leave so we don't have to do anything. Because when it comes to that, it's going to be so hard for the likes of, you know, Mark Drakeford, um, although, you know, he's shown himself to be quite pragmatic about the whole thing. It's going to be really hard for a lot of unionists, as they stand right now, who are pragmatic unionists, to then say, right, we're going to have to have an independent Wales in that way. And I think by that point, it might even be too late. So, you know, it's kind of a warning in some sense, the way I put it, that we're really facing a a situation now that Wales is obviously behind on the constitutional debates that we're having across the UK. And that's a symptom of our, you know, historic ties to England over over 800 years. But it's also the fact that, you know, lots of people do like 
things like the royal family in Wales and they like the institutions that we've been given. We've been given, you know, from the Liberal Party to the Labour Party. We were given representation and the welfare state and all these sorts of things. And I think if you went to some, you know, some place across, you know, good at Merthyr Tidville, Bangor, Pembroke or whatever, they are not taught. I don't think everyone is talking about independence right now. And I think that's the issue that nationalists also have to overcome. They do, they do. It was a really interesting piece. Uh, thanks for expanding on that. You know, we're talking about the Conservatives uh, here tonight to an extent, and the champion-in-chief of the union amongst them is Boris, currently uh, in Scotland, travelling around the UK. So Boris has probably got his supporters in Wales amongst Welsh Conservatives. He he is that popular figurehead, and he does get support from his natural supporters. But is he, as the kind of figurehead of the survival of the union, is that a problem to the wider kind of unionist movement in in Wales? Uh, Well, Boris is obviously a terrible advocate for the union because the union, as envisaged by Boris Johnson, is not the union of 2021. It's the union of 1971. And the idea that you can persuade Scots um, in particular, but also a huge swathe of people who live in Wales, that the union is a good thing by telling them repeatedly how good a thing it is, is limited. You actually have to do the thing. You have to actually make the union work for people and in the interest, not just of people in Scotland and Wales, but in North and West England as well, in order for people to feel that they're invested in its future. And in order to do that, you have to be less Westminster centric and looking after the square mile in London. And those are the things that this current UK government looks after more than anything else. <laughs> so you have that, you know, you have a, a losing paradox here. The people who could save the union are the people who are genuinely looking to reform it, but they're never going to win power in Westminster, or certainly not in the short term. And it is ultimately in Westminster, if you wanted to reform the union, where you have to gain power. The Scots have got a different approach, which is, well, we're not going to wait for the union to be reform we're going to take take control of the steering wheel ourselves the the problem we have in wales is that we have a person in the driving seat or a series of people in the driving seat who don't particularly want to take control of the steering wheel but don't necessarily want to be a passenger either so we're sort of freewheeling down the m4 and it's a dangerous position because we could be uh, you know innocent victims of you know uh, forces outside of our control as theo um, quite rightly puts if someone asked me to put a bet on it, I think Theo is absolutely right. Much as it wouldn't be to the taste of many people, actually, I think we'll end up with essentially a United Kingdom of England and Wales that resembles the cricket team of England. You know, Wales will be there, but it will be invisible and powerless. The question really is how comfortable are we with that? Um, because obviously there are a huge swathe of the Conservative Party who are very comfortable with that. In fact, that's the optimal <laughs> outcome for many of them. Uh, and actually, quite a lot of Labour supporters and a fair number of the PLP, I think, are probably quite supportive of that as well. So is it a question for Labour to lead the way? Well, we've heard sounds from Keir Starmer and Gordon Brown sound very familiar, but it's a kind of tune that never really uh, kind of hits home, never gets people on the dance floor, so to speak. I I just don't think it's very, it's not looking good. The question of leadership is not just one for who's going to lead the Welsh Conservative Party, who's going to lead that side of the political spectrum in Wales, but who's actually going to lead Wales? Because Mark Drakeford, for all his many skills, is not a natural leader. Um, Plaid Cymru maybe have uh, the the man with the the strongest 
leadership credentials or at the very least ambitions in Wales, but I don't think he's he's been able to unify people outside of the applied curious voter base anyway. And it's just a real challenge. It's a challenge. And I, you know, I, I think if anyone's got any answers, please send them on a postcard uh, and we'll do a podcast about it. I think you're, I think you're right, Richard. And I, I was quite I was struck really this week, actually, that Mark Drakeford gave an interview where he even said that he couldn't promise a federal UK to the to the voters of Wales. And I think, I mean, I, I feel, I feel you know, kind of sorry for him in some respects. I actually personally like Mark Drakeford. He's, he's a good guy. I think he's done a good job throughout the pandemic. But I think it sort of showed that he really, at this current, current sort of system we have in the union, doesn't work because we literally cannot get through to the Downing Street switchboard at times. And that is just, it makes for a terrible headline. It makes for a terrible story. And people just go and click on Yes Cymru, as you've seen on social media. And that's the sort of the snowball effect. But I think what you said as well is quite interesting about what the likely of it, likelihood of it is, it is of it happening. Because right now, I think if you had a, to be hypothetical about the whole thing, and I think it's been in the, in, in the news this week as well, I, I saw a piece from uh, Simon Brooks in Nation about it, actually about an independence referendum. If you put independence for Wales, whatever that means, on, on the table and sort of abolishing the Senate right now on the table, I think really, if we were realistic, people would vote to abolish the Senate. And I think that is a really a terrible condemnation on where we are in the state of our politics. Um, you know, because I think you know, personally, I always think we should, we should have a parliament to, to debate the issues that we have. So I think it's a really, you know, it's easy to sort of gloss over it and, you know, to talk. But I think there is genuinely a lack of urgency about the real possibility within, you know, five years. I mean, I remember David Melding said to you on your podcast that the phrase he said was that, you know, the, the notion of Welsh independence, you know, in the, in the next couple of generations, that's not the right time frame. I think in the next 10 years, it's going to come to a head. And right now we are in that limbo, as you said, Richard, between the back seat and the, and, and the driving seat. And there is nobody right now who's willing to put the seatbelt on and just go in one direction. And I, I think it's really, really challenging for us uh, as a country as well. Yeah, this is what baffles me. And I, I, Labour in the you know, UK, the English Labour Party, and Labour in Wales keeps coming up with ideas, but never actually either campaigns on them or puts them into action. And it feels to me that this sense of urgency, I think Theo is absolutely right, the sense of urgency is there because Scotland could be gone or at least have a foot out the door this year. And I just think, well, if, if Labour is genuinely serious, where is the urgency? No, it's ridiculous, isn't it? And um, I think we've all been to events or read pamphlets and papers galore about Labour's plan for a radical future, reformed union. And it never goes anywhere because no one really cares it's not really uh, the average Labour members or politicians' bread and butter issue. They don't like talking about uh, questions of national identity. They don't like talking about state in that way. They're quite happy to talk about statism and things like that, but not the state and the nature of it. So I, I don't think there's any real urgency to talk about it because they don't really want to talk about it or really understand it in, in huge detail. What you're seeing now in the, the Welsh Labour backed report, let's be perfectly honest, that radical federalism thing, although it's not officially backed by the party, the amount of uh, cabinet members who have been talking about it as though that's the done deal, end of story, future plan, gives you the indication that it's been pre-planned or at least pre-agreed. They've done that to try and stop people who support independence or 
sort of a more confederal model at the very least kicking off and and they talk about a dialogue and they talk about a plan and they talk about proposals then they also talk about citizens assemblies don't see how those two quite mix together but anyway and it's like a done deal it's a done deal they, they seem to think this is it now we've, we've we've stopped our nationalist wing complaining which it has really not done and they think that's fine we'll just get into government and we'll implement that forgetting of course the huge Scotland-sized hole in that plan that they won't ever get into government without winning Scotland back and they can't win Scotland back without something better than what they're planning on that question and they'll both fail to address the real issue which is Scotland's claim of right but that's where all their voters have gone in 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 uh, in Scotland is to the SNP and they're not going to win those back by just trying to ignore the constitutional issue when over half nearly 60% of the country want to go. So Labour can't implement that radical federalism plan without being in the UK government. They can't get into the UK government without Scotland. Very difficult anyway. And even if they did, I have absolutely no faith that what they would actually do is try and sort out the union. Because when we had a majority of 179 in 1997, we didn't do anything with it then. We could have ploughed through huge sweeping reform to the UK state. We could have completely done electoral reform, et cetera, as well. And we didn't because it wasn't a priority. And if we won election again, I don't think it'd be a priority then. And it, what you see when you talk, listen to Mark Drake for this week is that what, what power do you have to offer Welsh voters federalism? None at all, because the constitution is reserved and we can't do anything about it. So essentially this is a begging bowl to UK Labour to uh, please recognise what we're asking for if you get elected, which we know you won't. So thanks anyway. That's a pretty good answer there for Matt. <laughs> I, I, where, where do we go from that? It's, uh, he's kind of blown my Scotland questions out of the waters. Theo, just, do you want to comment on uh, Matt's uh, soliloquy there? Yeah, I, 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 I hate to be a you know a committee of yeses, but obviously completely agree with Matt as well. I think it's a great assessment, actually, of where Labour is. I mean, there's a couple of points, actually, which are interesting, is that Keir Starmer was totally in agreement with Boris to going to Scotland uh, today. And I think it really upset everyone on Call Keir and LBC. My mum was outraged. Uh, she couldn't believe it. I mean, I think, you know, you mentioned Scottish Labour, obviously they're completely irrelevant now. I think the interesting bit, actually, to go back to the Conservative Party is what Douglas Ross and all those guys get up to. Because the Scottish Conservative Party, you know, I know, you know, a couple of you know, activists there and people associated with the party. They're quite pragmatic. They're quite sensible. And Douglas, Douglas Ross obviously has been a kind of a sensible voice in the whole debate because he basically told Boris Johnson, please don't come to Scotland and don't be a part of it because he, he realises that they're in a really, really terrible state. Obviously, the Welsh Labour model of federalism, first of all, nobody knows what that actually means and what's the difference with confederalism in terms of a, this Benelux model that Adam Price and everyone is talking about all the time. It comes back again to this, this Conservative Party and what their proposals are, because the Labour Party, of course, are not in power. If they were in power, they probably wouldn't do anything anyway. I mean, I think it's what well, I think somebody said, uh, I think it might have been Richard Wynne Jones put on Twitter that I think Stephen Crabb actually gave more devolution to Wales than Gordon Brown ever did. And really, it is up to that Conservative Party, which is apparently being advised by Gordon Brown, you know, via Michael Gore, exchanging notes and, you know, the future of the union, what shall I put my telegraph piece and all this. And really, it is whether the party in London comes to the realisation that they have to adopt something like federalism. Because, I mean, you listen to some of the um, more liberal conservatives in Wales, and they are openly speaking about 
federalism. First of all, you had devolution as an uncontrolled element of saving the union. And now you have this notion of federalism being written into the constitution of the UK. And, you know, that is really where the debate is at now. I mean, I think it's a disaster really for Welsh Labour in the sense they can't really change anything. Um, and they've been this, you know, stronghold of Welsh politics for 100 years, so important to the development of our, really our national life. And they have absolutely no control of where it goes. You know, look at the UK Labour Party now. Um, you know, they lost Scotland five, six years ago, really, and they haven't had it back since. So it really is, you know, whether there is that transition to adopting Labour policy from Downing Street, which I think would be a massive step. But even then, would it make a difference? I, I'm not I'm not so sure. I'm I'm genuinely fascinated by the people who advocate federalism. Certainly this kind of idea of, of a federalism within England as well as a you know a federalism including Scotland and Wales because you know we had this experience in Wales where even under or particularly so under the Labour government 97 to 2010 you know Wales had to fight tooth and nail to improve the dodgy devolution settlement of 97 and Actually, the idea that within England, this UK government or any future UK government is going to be willing to cede legislative power to the north of England or the west of England, it seems bananas to me. I mean, we still don't have... We, we still don't have any significant control over matters related to justice in Wales, despite, you know, having to supply all of the services related, connect into the justice system. We don't have any saying, or, or, nor policing either. And the idea that... <laughs> Any UK government of any colour would would say to the north of England, sure, under your own directly elected mayors or whatever, feel free to you know pass laws about this or that related to any of these serious matters. It, it's for the birds to me. I just don't see I don't see any universe where a UK government makes that decision, and I don't see any universe where any party genuinely puts that in its platform. And I, I was joking with somebody on Twitter today. You know, the only party that's consistently advocated federalism is the uh, the Liberal Democrats, the Liberals as was, and a hundred or so years later, they still don't have a plan, a workable plan for England. So, you know, if you've been campaigning for it for a century and you still haven't got past writing the title and underlining it, there is no plan, surely, that can come out for the future of England that looks massively different to what this UK government is kind of already doing, which is kind of piecemeal, low-level devolution to cities and um, and local government. If you had a federal England, you'd end up with a first minister more powerful than the prime minister, or at least certainly a situation where there are more is more attention put on the actions of the English first minister than the UK prime minister. You'd end up with a Yeltsin-style situation in in Russia. The, the idea that you could federalise England as one solid block is for the birds, and the idea that you could split it up is for the birds too, because no one wants it. If you had asymmetric legislative blocks with different powers in each different area, they'd hate that too, because they'd be like, why have they got more power than we have? Why have they got more power than we have? We want more power. So you have to, you have to split it up and give each of these blocks a sort of relatively powerful parliament, or it will just fail anyway. And they're never going to do that. They're never going to cede power. Look, it took forever for them to give us the Wales Act, and that's not yeah, great. I, I think I mean I think that's right. And also, just look at what you know happened during COVID with you know Andy Burnham and everything going on in Manchester. And then this is it, obviously, because it's easy to forget the debates about the union and the fact that actually lots of the problems and the fact that it's so centralised. And even in England, lots of people just speaking to me just couldn't believe the way that 
they were sort of framing like how Manchester was treated, you know, how Manchester was treated by London. And it's just you're thinking, you're just looking at everything going on. You're Andy Burnham sort of basically begging for money outside. And they wouldn't even give it to, you know, England's, you know, second or third city. And then there's a prospect now that we're talking about federalising everything. I mean, it's really complex. And I think obviously, like you mentioned, I think you had Jane Dodds on previously as well. Uh, clearly, obviously, I've been listening to all the podcasts. Um, Thank you very much. But, you know, it, I think she actually, like you said, she hadn't really, I think not to, you know, misquote or anything, but I think she basically didn't have an answer for a federal England. And that is quite a, a massive thing that even then, it's, it's just one of these catch-all terms to be used in politics. Oh, we're going to, you know, we're going to have a you know, massive economic recovery. We're going to have a federal system. We're going we're gonna to transform the lives of people. It doesn't actually mean anything. And this, and I read um, Nick Antonou and the sort of quasi Welsh Labour pamphlet, and it was a, it's an introductory pamphlet, really. We, it's good. We're all saying that it's not going to work simply because we just don't know what they're actually proposing. And that's if they give gave us a plan, that would be a useful thing. And I think it also has to be the case that they need to approach the issue slightly differently as well, because I think Gordon Brown basically has said we need to say save the UK, but it actually hasn't asked what the union is for. And I think it's kind of putting the chicken for the egg. Um, and it's, it's really, really difficult to essentially say we're going to have another constitutional convention, which means we're going to give you X amount of powers again and then come back to us in five years with demands for another referendum. We'll give you more. And I think, obviously, we've come to a point now where we have an incompetent government in Downing Street that is uh, literally gone to Scotland today saying nobody cares about an independence referendum. And they are kind of not really doing much. You've got a Labour Party, which is not going to win the next general election, most likely, and won't be able to implement anything. And then you've got poor, gallant little Wales, uh, which has got, you know, a pretty popular first minister saying, oh, you know, we should probably give everyone more powers and treat the nations with respect. I'd like to join your COBRA meetings. And no one's listening to him genuinely now as well. That is a terrible thing, no matter what political party you support. I think the predicament we're in. I mean, I really say this, and I try and be fair, you know, in my analysis, but I think it's it is really, really difficult the situation we're in. I don't think, you know, you sometimes have a lot of people and you know certain parties we've mentioned tonight who really revel you know, in the fact when things go wrong for our government in Cardiff. I mean, I think we really, really need to realize that we're in a terrible state in the midst of this pandemic, economically and in the public health sense. And when we look at the future of this country, and it's going to impact a lot of people, you know, we're really divided and there's no one really to unite us. We've got, we haven't got the mechanisms, we haven't got the media to do so. And it's really, I mean, I'm really painting a bleak picture on a Friday evening for all of you. Um, but I think that's genuinely where, that's where we are. We've talked so much about it, but I just don't think none of us have any solutions for it, which is the most worrying thing. Although not necessarily um, a huge number of part people participate as a percentage of the population. But I think there's a very healthy intellectual debate about the future of Wales and the future of Union, be it in the Welsh Twitterverse or elsewhere. But I do think, we, exactly as you said, Theo, we have to deal with the world as it is rather than as it could be in theory. And I think in that light, I think I'd probably kind of like to ask what your take is on what do you think the reality is that will happen over the next 12 months or so in Wales and Scotland with regards to both you know, our two key subjects tonight, the Conservative Party and the future of the Union? Well, I think in terms of the election in May, I mean, I don't see a great deal changing in terms of the polls. And what I mean by that, you're going to have a Welsh Labour Party winning the most seats. I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, probably not an um, outright majority, although I think, you know, it depends on 
how the vaccine rollout goes. I mean, one week I was writing how terrible everything was, and then a week later they're the best in the in the UK. So I'm very, very accurate as a political commentator. And then I think you're going to have Plaid Cymru and the Conservatives fighting for the second spot. And I still think, I still maintain this, that if the both parties pulled their socks up and wanted to get Welsh Labour out because they're so terrible, they could, they could do it. And that makes it really interesting. But I don't think it's going to happen. So I don't think it's a huge deal going to change. And we'll have Mark Drickford coming back for it you know, a couple of years as first minister before he hands on to Von Geffen and Ken Skitt. In the, in the midst of that, then, we've got the situation where we're looking really an SNP government with a massive majority in, in May. And I think that is going to pose a lot of questions for the government in Westminster, but also for us in Cardiff. What we will see then, as we've seen already, is this discussion about what is the referendum we're going to have? Are we going to make you do Catalonia? Which I think you know, for the record, it would be a disaster because it would just be discredited by everyone. I mean, I think Douglas Ross was calling it a wildcat referendum, and now that's been picked up in every single media outlet. Everyone's calling it a wildcat referendum. So you can see, you know, where the narrative goes from there. But I think you will, in the next 12 months, we'll have that SNP majority, and very likely we will have, a you know, a referendum, you know, the next couple of years in Scotland because the pressure will be just immense on Downing Street. And I think then there will be a shift, I would hope, from the Welsh Labour Party, because I think, I mean, you've you touched upon it before, obviously, on these podcasts, and you see it in all these debates all the time. It really is, I think, the Welsh Labour Party, the most instinctively Welsh party we have in Wales, it's been so central to our, you know, society and, our, and the, the, the development of our civic society. It is they who will shape where we go next, I think. And if they, if Mark Drakeford, if there's a referendum called in Scotland, will we call for one in Wales? And how will we envisage Wales's role in a in a in a in a new union or a new confederal model of pooling resources and all these kinds of things that people talk about across Britain? But I think it is very uncertain. Um, there's still that possibility. Remember that the SNP implodes with Alex Salmon and Nicola Sturgeon, you know, fighting each other. I think Alex Massey wrote in the Spectator today, uh, looking at essentially, you know, nobody makes the case for leaving. Uh, the union than Boris Johnson, but there's nobody that really could destroy the independence movement other than Nicola Sturgeon. And I think there's so many variables that are there, but I think essentially we're going to come to this juncture where the constitution of, of Britain and the UK is at its head. And I think then, although we won't see political change in Cardiff Bay, I think there might be that moment that another terrible referendum we'll have to have where we'll talk about all these things over again. But I mean, I think it is, we're coming to a point now where Wales actually is going to have to, and I've said that, you know, Wales should wake up before, but it's kind of hard to speak to 3 million people at once. I think we will have to decide eventually, though, you know, what is our place? Is it with England? Is it within a confederal model of a new Britain with England and Scotland, which I think personally is the most likely thing and probably the best thing that we can do right now to pool resources and so on? It's going to be very, very difficult. So we've had Brexit in 2016. We're very likely to have Wexit, but we just don't know when, don't know what it will look like, and don't know how long it will last. So it's going to be very, very exciting. Kerry? I think we go. Scotland will have the referendum. Where that leaves Wales and the rest of the UK, who knows? I think there'll be further devolution. I think Theo put my side on it. I, I think the confederal kind of approach. The problem is there isn't an obvious solution to come from. Conservatives in Wales... I think we've spent a lot of time talking about the move to the right, but I'm just reflecting on some of the guests we've had on the pod 
from the Conservative Party. You know, we've had Emma Wildhale, we've had Amanda Jenner, James Davis. It's more than just those that have been on the, me the social media splash uh, in the last few weeks that make up the party. And you have got Lauren Jones in South East Wales, Natasha Askar. There, there are more candidates out there than we're just focusing on. So I think it's not as bleak as what it might be portrayed. And Wales has got a strong Conservative background. 20 to 30% always vote Conservative come rain or shine. So they're a big part of our civic makeup. And, you know, they, they always will be. So we want to just get the best out of that part of our population. I... I'm not very happy about my prediction, but it's one I'm pretty nailed on for, is that I think nothing that's happened in the last few weeks will really matter for the Welsh Tories. I think they're going to have a really good Senate election and be really well placed if they need to or really want to have some sort of compact with Plaid. Not that I think it's likely, but it could happen, but certainly they'll do well enough that any other formation of government would require a coalition or a compact on the other side. And I think that the UK government will reject a referendum in Scotland. And I think that the only way that Scotland gets a legal, internationally recognised referendum is when one of the parties needs them for votes in the, in the Commons. That's it. They're going to keep saying no, because the two major parties in the UK level don't want them to go. Uh, the Tories for a, a reputational reasoning and Labour for electoral ones. They don't want them to go. So they're not going to grant them a referendum. They know they're going to lose. Unless something seriously changes in the polling or the electoral maths up in Scotland, it's not going to happen. So although I'm not happy about the prediction, I think the Conservatives are going to go from strength to strength in the next few years, no matter what happens. I think you've seen through coronavirus that their polling has stayed pretty much exactly the same. It dropped a bit when Barnard Castle happened, but since then, it's been absolutely solid at a sort of higher end of the 30s, lower 40s. And strangely, actually, I think that the Scottish Tories having Douglas Ross, a perfect candidate to be First Minister in an independent Scotland, he seems to get it. I don't think it's going to really matter because they're going to come second and have about a third of the seats of the SNP. But he seems to understand the need to be a distinctly Scottish Conservative Party. And if only we had something like that down here, it would be better for Wales and better for Welsh democracy. And on that well note... <laughs> that yeah. was spot on, actually. Really, really did sum up that. I, I will take the liberty, if I may then, Matt, of wrapping up uh, and saying thank you to Theo for joining us this evening. Thank you to Kerry and Matt and all the espressos Matt has obviously drunk today. So if anyone's interested in hearing more about what you have to say, Theo, uh, where can they find you and read your writings? Uh, in the deepest, darkest depths of Welsh Twitter, you might find me uh, tweeting out on, well, I think it's T. Davis Lewis, but that's where most of my stuff goes. And then otherwise in, you know, the usual outlets that people can comment and do so on. So we've got Spectator, Nation and all the like. So uh, there will be plenty ahead of uh, May for everyone to disagree with me on, which I hope they will. To be fair, there aren't many people who get to write uh, for both The Spectator and Nation. I know, so. it's an interesting mix. I try and hyperlink when I can, just to sort of really confuse the editors, uh, which is always fun. The Hereife blog uh, is also available as a <laughs> platform for writing on theatre. Yeah, it was never offered, so I'd, I'd love to if you're, if, if you're willing to have me. 
I think definitely very excellent. Kindly. Thank you, uh, uh, Matthew Hexter. Where can people find you on Twitter? They can find me on Twitter at Hexter one hundred one H E X T E R one hundred one. And Kerry, it's it's the very unprofessional Kerry the Viking, but there's a history to that. Twitter's not meant to be for this professional platform, but it's Kerry at Kerry the Viking. And uh, I'm uh, to be found at at Mimosa Cymru. Um, so thanks once again to Theo and the lads for podcast this evening if you're enjoying the podcast uh, please like and subscribe in your podcast player of choice and you can find Hiraith on Hiraith Blog Cymru on medium.com Hiraith Blog Cymru on Facebook and at Hiraith Blog on Twitter how did I do Matt when did we agree when did we agree you were wrapping up I I haven't done that yet (laughs) it's inevitable it's inevitable thank you for listening to Hiraith if you like what you heard please don't forget to subscribe rate and review